0: This morning I'd like to probably conclude um, with the CSI. I just thought it would be interesting that I don't normally try to do a series of sermons, but this morning I'd like to probably conclude called CSI Jerusalem, An Eyewitness Testimony. The text for this morning's lesson is 1 Corinthians chapter, first, uh, chapter 15, So, 1 Corinthians 15, and it will be like the first eight verses or so. What does living by faith mean today? It means deciding what is the controlling principle in our lives. Is it luck or is it chance? When you look at individuals and how they live their lives, people will say, Good luck. Are we living by luck? Are we living by chance? A man had parked his car at the office when a lady came up to him and said, ah, that's a nice car, but I wouldn't want to drive it. He was rather puzzled and put back. Then he asked, well, why not? And she looked at him and said, well, isn't it easy to see? First it's green and the registration number adds up to 13. Nancy, life being governed by superstition. There are people that run their lives with superstition. It begs us with the question, what influences us? Is it faith? Is it superstition? Or is it faith? As we studied this morning, we finished up Hebrews chapter 12 in our Bible study this morning. And we look at how we need to worship God. And how God is a consuming fire, and we need to worship Him in reverence and in godly fear. So, what is our life and our, our 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 patterns today? About 10 years ago, during a homicidal trial in Nassau County in the state of New York, the prosecution was examining their witness on the stand. And in his testimony, the witness stated that he saw the victim lying on the ground, obviously dead. Well, the prosecution had finished, and the defense lawyer rose to his feet in an attempt of undermining the credibility of the witness. So he conducted the following cross-examination. Sir, are you a doctor? No, replied the witness. Well, are you a paramedic? No, I'm not. The witness stated, have you ever gone to medical school? No, never, was the answer. Then tell me, sir, how do you know that the victim was indeed dead? Well, responded the witness, I went to his funeral. In every crime scene investigation, it's hard to beat the value of an eyewitness. Now, it is the fact that witnesses can often disagree on some significant details of the crime. But when large numbers of eyewitnesses tell you the same thing over and over and over, it's a pretty good indication that they saw personally and what they saw is most likely true. The Bible recognizes this fact. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, we're told one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense that he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, as we read in Deuteronomy 19 and 15. The concept was so central to biblical reasoning that when Paul confronted the church at Corinth about problems that they were having, he told them something very similar. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 1, he said, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so it's not surprising to find that Jesus built his church upon the foundation of a multitude of witnesses. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended in heaven, the apostles sensed a need to find a replacement for Judas. Judas. Peter cited references from the Old Testament, explaining why they should do this, why they should follow a particular sequence. And then he said in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, it is necessary to choose one of the men whom have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, whoever was going to replace Judas was one of, you know, for, as one of the twelve and with the twelve had to be an eyewitness. Not just his resurrection, but of everything that Jesus had done from his baptism by John all the way up through his ministry unto his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So only men, two men, it seems like, met that criteria. What that reveals to us is the following. It is significant that the apostles placed the significance that the apostles have placed on the importance of eyewitness accounts. When Luke wrote his gospel, he stressed how important it was to be firsthand from his book. We can read in Luke 1, verses 1 and 2. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Later, when he composed his story about the church, the book of Acts, if Luke is the author of that, Luke wrote these words. And you can read in the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter one, verse three. In my former book, Theodos, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So very subtly, Luke is telling his friend that the eyewitnesses he used for his book didn't just see the risen Jesus, once. But they saw him several times. So when Paul writes about the story of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, you can sense that he is telling of witnesses of the resurrection, that he's already spoken to himself. He says that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brethren at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to then to all the apostles, and the last all and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, he says. So eventually Paul is saying, Hey, there's a hundred, there's like five hundred witnesses who saw the risen Christ you don't believe me, if you have any doubts, if you have any questions, just go and ask any of them. Go and ask groups of them. Today, think about all the doubt that we have in our society. People that question, is the Bible really God's word? Or is the Bible God's word, but is it out of date? So that we have to create our own. You know, I know what the Bible says, but I believe that we need to do this. That's old. I'm sure it could be updated. And so it sounds like many men, or sorry, maybe politically correct, many human beings and individuals are rewriting God's Word? What gives us the authority? We're not eyewitnesses. We. What gives us the authority to change God's Word, I would ask you. So how do we know what these witnesses saw? Well, a few of them wrote books. One of those witnesses had just been a tax collector before he met Jesus. He was an educated man who wrote down the things that he had heard and observed, and he wrote a book we call the Gospel of Matthew. Then there was a man who once made his living working for his father. He apparently came from a fairly wealthy family because his dad owned the boat and had servants. This man was once a, one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he was privy or privy to conversations, I should say, to miracles and other things that had never been seen or heard by others. He was the he had, was the last gospel that was written. And he told things that aren't written in the other three. His name was John. And he wrote the gospel that bears his name. There's Gospel Mark, written by a young man who was a, a friend and companion of the Apostle Peter. Because of the close connection to his early, being an early leader in the church, Mark was able to write down the, remembrance, the remembrances of the great Apostle And the preacher. And of course, you have the Gospel of Luke. It was written by a doctor who was also a companion of the Apostle Paul. And Luke, as we've noticed earlier, worked very hard to interview people. He interviewed the mother of Jesus, he interviewed Lazarus, Zacchaeus, Joseph. Uh, and many other of the original apostles. The Gospels are all first accounts, first-hand accounts, by eyewitnesses who actually saw and heard Jesus. Now, of late, people have tried to tell us that there are other Gospels. As I mentioned, you may run into people that try to revise what the apostles have written. One thing we got to remember, a little footnote not only were they eyewitnesses, they were inspired by God in what they wrote. I don't know too many people today. First off, we don't know of anybody today that's an eyewitness to Jesus' life. And then, we don't have any indication that they are inspired by God to write. Many religions have their own individual creed books that they use as the foundation of their particular beliefs such as the Quran the Book of Mormon uh, there's Sutras, Vidas the Torah and even some have created uh, I have not come across it yet but I believe there is what they call the Gospel of Judas many so-called scholars claim that this newly rewritten or about gospel of Judas gives us new information about Jesus that we didn't have before. But most Christians have simply scoffed that off. The early church knew, and we know as well, that this so-called gospel was not an eyewitness account. It was written long after, from what I understand, Judas had died. In fact, it was written long after anyone who had ever seen Jesus died. And in all likelihood, had it been written long after anyone who knew anyone who had seen Jesus had died. Then we know there's the bestseller by Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code. Mr. Brown touted this novel as a historical fiction. In other words, he is trying to convince people that his fiction is built on truth. In his book, Mr. Brown was declared, he declared that Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted those gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits, and it embellished those gospels that made him godlike. The earlier gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. Brown went on to say that more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a Relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are among them. I'd have to say he's being very untruthful and deceptive as many scholars are in our day today. I love the word scholar. You know, when you talk about an oxymoron, you talk about scholars against Christ, scholars refuting the Bible. To me, that's an oxymoron. Scholars think they're smart. They're so wise, they think they're smarter than God and God's word. And they're going to revise it. And they're going to improve on it. And they're going to add to it. Hmm. Brings me to the thought. I believe in the very end of Matthew. I mean, sorry, Revelation. Very end. Oh, I, was, I used to like to read, how did we begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go to the book of Revelation, you got this big, massive book. How does it end? Do not add to or take away. Because there's a there's an actual promise for those. There's a punishment that takes place for anyone who adds to or takes away from God's word. Hmm. So God, I picture in writing that Jesus is speaking. Because I remember reading the red print, Jesus was speaking in those words. And now we say, well, that, for anybody in our society today, says, well, that Bible is outdated. Maybe we should add things to it. Hmm. I go back to Jesus' words. Could Jesus see the future? Sure. Did Jesus know? Did God know what the future holds? Yes. The only thing that God holds that Jesus doesn't is the actual date of the second, you know, the judgment. We know that Jesus says he, even he doesn't know that, but God does. Everything else they didn't form together. All these documents uh, were all rejected principally because they weren't even close to being the writings of eyewitnesses or anyone who knew of an eyewitness. So we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death his burial his resurrection they're all built on the foundation of a multitude of reliable witnesses the gospel of judas the da vinci code and all these others are not years ago two men were riding on a railroad train discussing the gospel told of jesus the first man said i think it could be an interesting romance written there about jesus the other one said You are just the man to write it. Set forth the correct view of his life and character. Tear down the prevailing sentiment as to his divinity and paint him as he was, a man among men. The man who made that suggestion was Colonel Robert Ingersoll, a renowned agnostic and enemy of the church. The other man, from what I understand, was a general by the name of Lou Wallace. Wallace began investigating the stories of the Gospels. And the more he investigated, the more he was convinced he became that the eyewitness accounts were very extremely truthful. And that Jesus presented by them was indeed the resurrection of the Son of God. And that's why I tried to go back to last week. What was the servant last week? The centurion. You talk about an agnostic, non-believing person. And even the centurion, being an eyewitness, saw and heard multiple things, probably from other centurions, and then he witnessed at the feet of Jesus, Jesus' death and his proclamation. Truly, this was the Son of God. Those are the people that we believe. Those are the people that we follow, that I witnessed and knew what was there. Down through history, many others have come to the same conclusion. Whether you be doctors, scientists, lawyers, historians, have all seen the Bible as an unshakable base for their faith. Now, as reliable as those witnesses are, we need to understand something. They are all dead now. Granted, we have the written stories, but there are so many people who aren't interested in the stories of dead men. In their minds, the witnesses of men and women from the past are interesting, but they don't know, and they don't want to know the stories of the dead. They want to hear the stories of the living. In other words, they don't want what they call a dead religion, they want a living faith. They don't want a history lesson. They want to know if Jesus changes their lives today. They want to know what Jesus can do for you and me today. Well, the famous atheist, Frederick um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, once said, show me that you are redeemed and I will believe in your redeemer. Hmm. There's a song that we sing, isn't there? I know that my redeemer lives and ever prays for me. We think about why do we why does God want us to sing in the first place? You know, I like to ponder questions like that. Not only are we singing praise to him, but you think about the words. It's encouragement for us also. Our God is alive. You know, our God, He is alive in Him. We live and we survive. God knows that, but He wants to remind us of that. The writers of these songs encourage us. We praise God and encourage ourselves at the same time. Now, Christians can fall into a trap when it comes to thinking to others and talking to others about their faith. I've done it myself. We often focus on inviting people to our church. what do we say? Well, we have a loving congregation. Or you might say, you like your preacher. Maybe you don't say that. (laughs) Or you might talk about how great our worship service is. Oh, those things are okay, don't get me wrong. But we can often sometimes forget to mention the real importance of the information we are sharing to them. We can forget to talk about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us in our lives. What is the importance of coming? Is it because we have a nice building? Is it because it's warm? Is it because of this and that? Or is it because we come to worship Jesus? We come to encourage one another. We come to praise God and Jesus for what they have done in our lives. That we come to remember Jesus as we spoke of in our Bible study this morning and what is so uncomprehensible about his gift of his own life for us. And we come to thank him. We come to remember that sacrifice. We come to offer prayers to God thanking him we come to worship, to, uh, to sing songs of praise to God, to hear message, to encourage us, and that we can encourage one another. And then there are those who don't share their faith in Jesus because they want to avoid being seen as a fanatic. Bill Bright told of a meeting with a young, uh, a leading American statesman who was supposedly a professing Christian. Bright had just asked the man to become involved in a massive effort to share their faith with people around the world. The man's response shocked him. He says, I don't wear my religion on my sleeve. My religion is personal, and I just don't want to talk about it. Bright was startled and could only ask, you are a Christian, aren't you? And the other man replied, yes, but I'm not a religious fanatic. Bill Bright thought about that for a moment and then asked, did it ever occur to you that it cost Jesus his entire life so you could call yourself a Christian? And that's what we have to look at today. When we look at our lives... We are called a Christian because Jesus thought of us so much that he lived his entire life to be a pattern, example, to teach, and to die for us. Hebrews 12 and 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It cost the disciples their lives too, didn't it? And millions of Christians throughout the centuries have suffered and died as martyrs in order to get the message of God's love and forgiveness out to us. We have a song that we sing, number 222, Faith of Our Father's living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. And now I ask, do we really believe that our faith in Christ is personal and private and that we shouldn't talk about it? As quick as a flash, the man back in the example I was given said, No, sir, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I never looked at it that way before. I understand your point, and I will go about sharing my faith with others. So, to close this morning in Romans 10 and 17, it tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. The Word of God, the eyewitness account, nothing else. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. These accounts of eyewitnesses that saw. It is, as John 5 and 24 tells us, it is by faith that the sinner is saved and escapes judgment. Ephesians 3 and 17 says, it is by faith that Christ Jesus dwells in the heart. Galatians 2 and 20 It is by faith that we live. And in Romans 11 and 20, it says, and it is by faith that we stand. This morning, we know that we are encouraged to have that faith. That faith that causes us to live, to stand. We know that. If there's any question in our mind, I would like to bring out, I hope in these last three weeks, or the last three sermons I've given, that we are looking at what God has revealed to us. May we remember, it's not out of the date. God specifically chose these words. We know in John, at the end of the Gospel of John, it talks about how so many other things could be recorded. But God chose these. God inspired these eyewitnesses to include these. It's basically saying this was hand-selected by God and God felt this was enough. This was what God wants us to know, the summary of what we need to know. Repent, be baptized, every one of you for the remission of your sins, walk in newness of life. We know that we have those promises. If there's anybody that is in need of the invitation, whether to come forward to be baptized or to ask for the prayers of the congregation, you have that opportunity as together we stand and sing our song of invitation.